If you're enjoying The Sleepy Bookshelf, then be sure to check out the other sleepy shows in our network. Get Sleepy has original stories and meditations. I even narrate some of them. Or if you prefer relaxing soundscapes and music, then be sure to check out Deep Sleep Sounds. It's even great for babies too. You can find all of our shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks and sweet dreams. Good evening and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it is lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning again to To The Lighthouse. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Take a deep breath in and a long, slow exhale. Gently close your eyes and take another nice big inhale. Now slowly breathe out again and start to feel your body relax. Keep breathing deeply and on the next slow exhale, allow yourself to fully arrive into this moment, into your body and into your breath. Now find a more natural breath for you and just be here. Leave behind all the stresses of the day all the thoughts and worries of what you need to do tomorrow and gift yourself this time for you while I recap on the last episode. Last time, we were further introduced to Lily Briscoe, painting a picture of the house and the Ramsey family. She was preoccupied feeling inadequate to capture what she could see in front of her accurately when she was interrupted by another resident of the summer house, William Banks. He's an old botanist friend of Mr. Ramsey's, come to stay for a while. He and Lily have come to take a daily walk around the grounds in the evening. He's widowed and childless, and though old enough to be Lily's father, She has great admiration for him, and he for her. William has been musing of late about his friendship with Mr. Ramsay, how it has dissipated in the years since the Ramsay's marriage. He comforts himself before they go inside. As they pass Mrs. Ramsay, trying to get James to stay still while she measures up a stocking against him, she is knitting for the lighthouse keeper's son. She smiles, thinking for the first time that Lily and William should be married. She then notices what a mess the house is, but thinks how pointless it is to correct it 
while the doors and windows are always open and everything is so easily spoiled. William notes then how beautiful Mrs. Ramsay is. He remembers when Mr. Ramsay was first courting Mrs. Ramsay, how infatuated he was with her. And William remembered how unlike other women she was and has always been. We pick back up tonight as Mrs. Ramsay is trying to understand why her husband is so distressed. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 1. The Window. Chapter 6. But what had happened? Someone had blundered. Starting from her musing, she gave meaning to the words which she had held meaningless in her mind for a long stretch of time. Someone had blundered. Fixing her short-sighted eyes upon her husband, who was now bearing down upon her, she gazed steadily until his closeness revealed to her, the jingle mated itself in her head, that something had happened, someone had blundered. She could not for the life of her think what. He shivered, he quivered, All his vanity, all his satisfaction in his own splendor, riding fell as a thunderbolt, fierce as a hawk at the head of his men through the valley of death, had been shattered, destroyed, stormed at by shot and shell. Boldly we rode and well, flashed through the valley of death, volleyed and thundered, straight into Lily Briscoe and William Banks. He quivered. He shivered. Not for the world would she have spoken to him, realising from the familiar signs, his eyes averted, and some curious gathering together of his person, as if he wrapped himself about and needed privacy, into which to regain his equilibrium that he was outraged and anguished. She stroked James's head. She transferred to him what she felt for her husband. And as she watched him chalk yellow the white dress shirt of a gentleman in the Army and Navy stores catalogue, thought what a delight it would be to her should he turn out a great artist. And why should he not? He had a splendid forehead. Then, looking up as her husband passed her once more, she was relieved to find that the ruin was veiled. Domesticity triumphed. Custom crooned its soothing rhythm, so that when stopping deliberately as his turn came round again, at the window, he bent quizzically 
and whimsically to tickle James's bare calf with a sprig of something. She twitted him for having dispatched that poor young man, Charles Tansley. Tansley had had to go in and write his dissertation, he said. James will have to write his dissertation one of these days, he added ironically, flicking his sprig. Hating his father, James brushed away the tickling spray, with which, in a manner peculiar to him, compound of severity and humour, he teased his youngest son's bare leg. She was trying to get these tiresome stockings finished to send to Sawley's little boy tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay. There wasn't the slightest possible chance that they could go to the lighthouse tomorrow, Mr. Ramsay snapped out irascibly. How did he know? she asked. The wind often changed. The extraordinary irrationality of her remark, the folly of women's minds, enraged him. He had ridden through the valley of death, been shattered and shivered, and now she flew in the face of facts, made his children hope what was utterly out of the question. In effect, told lies. He stamped his foot on the stone step and cursed her. What had she said? Simply that it might be fine tomorrow. So it might. Not with the barometer falling and the wind due west. But to pursue the truth with such astonishing lack of consideration for other people's feelings. To rend the thin veils of civilization so wantonly, so brutally, was to her so horrible an outrage of human decency that without replying, dazed and blinded, she bent her head as if to let the pelt of jagged hail, the drench of dirty water, bespatter her unrebuked. There was nothing to be said. He stood by her in silence, very humbly at length. He said that he would step over and ask the coast guards if she liked. There was nobody whom she reverenced as she reverenced him. She was quite ready to take his word for it, she said. Only then they need not cut sandwiches, that was all. They came to her, naturally, since she was a woman, all day long with this and that. One wanting this, another that. The children were growing up. She often felt she was nothing but a sponge, sopped full of human emotions. Then he cursed her. He said it must rain. He said it won't rain. And instantly, a heaven of security opened before her. There was nobody she reverenced more. She was not good enough to tie his shoestrings, she felt. Already ashamed of that petulance, of that gesticulation of the hands when charging at the head of his troops, Mr. Ramsay rather sheepishly prodded his son's bare legs once more. And then, as if he had had leave for it, with a movement which oddly reminded his wife 
of the great sea lion at the zoo, tumbling backwards after swallowing his fish and walloping off so that the water in the tank washes from side to side. He dived into the evening air, which, already thinner, was taking the substance from leaves and hedges, but as if in return, restoring to roses and pinks a luster which they had not had by day. Someone had blundered, he said again, striding off up and down the terrace. But how extraordinarily his note had changed. It was like the cuckoo. In June he gets out of tune, as if he were trying over, tentatively seeking some phrase for a new mood and having only this at hand, used it, cracked though it was. But it sounded ridiculous. Someone had blundered, said like that, almost as a question, without any conviction, melodiously. Mrs. Ramsay could not help smiling, and soon, sure enough, walking up and down, he hummed it, dropped it, fell silent. He was safe. He was restored to his privacy. He stopped to light his pipe, looked once at his wife and son in the window, and as one raises one's eyes from a page in an express train and sees a farm, a tree, a cluster of cottages as an illustration, confirmation of something on the printed page to which one returns, fortified and satisfied, so without his distinguishing either his son or his wife. The sight of them fortified him and satisfied him, and consecrated his effort to arrive at a perfectly clear understanding of the problem, which now engaged the energies of his splendid mind. It was a splendid mind. For if thought is like the keyboard of a piano, divided into so many notes, or like the alphabet is ranged in 26 letters all in order, then his splendid mind had no sort of difficulty in running over those letters one by one, firmly and accurately, until it had reached, say, the letter Q. He reached Q. Very few people in the whole of England ever reach Q. Here, stopping for one moment by the stone urn which held the geraniums, he saw, but now far, far away, like children picking up shells, divinely innocent and occupied with little trifles at their feet, and somehow entirely defenceless against a doom which he perceived his wife and son, together in the window. They needed his protection. He gave it them. But after Q, what comes next? After Q, there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes, but glimmers red in the distance. Z is only reached once, by one man in a generation. Still, 
If he could reach R, it would be something. Here at least was Q. He dug his heels in at Q. Q he was sure of. Q he could demonstrate. If Q is Q, R. Here he knocked his pipe out with two or three resonant taps on the handle of the urn and proceeded. Then R. He braced himself. He clenched himself. Qualities that would have saved a ship's company exposed on a broiling sea with six biscuits and a flask of water. Endurance and justice. Foresight. Devotion. Skill came to his help. R is then... What is R? A shutter like the leathern eyelid of a lizard flickered over the intensity of his gaze and obscured the letter R. In that flash of darkness, he heard people saying he was a failure, that R was beyond him. He would never reach R. On to R once more. R. Qualities that in a desolate expedition across the icy solitudes of the polar region would have made him the leader, the guide, the counsellor, whose temper neither sanguine nor despondent surveys with equanimity what is to be and faces it, came to his help again. Ah. The lizard's eye flickered once more. The veins on his forehead bulged. The geranium in the urn became startlingly visible and, displayed among its leaves, he could see, without wishing it, that old, that obvious distinction between the two classes of men. One, on the one hand, the steady goers of the superhuman. Strength who, plodding and persevering, repeat the whole alphabet in order, 26 letters in all, from start to finish. On the other, the gifted, the inspired who miraculously lump all the letters together in one flash, the way of genius. He had not genius, he laid no claim to that, but he had or might have had the power to repeat every letter of the alphabet from A to Z accurately in order. Meanwhile, he stuck at Q. On then, on to R. Feelings that would not have disgraced a leader who, now that the snow has begun to fall and the mountain top is covered in mist, knows that he must lay himself down and die before morning comes, stole upon him, paling the color of his eyes, giving him, even in the two minutes of his turn on the terrace, the bleached look of withered old age. Yet he would not die lying down. He would find some crag of rock, and there, his eyes fixed on the storm, trying to end, to pierce the darkness, he would die standing. He would never reach R. 
He stood stock still by the urn, with the geranium overflowing it. How many men in a thousand million, he asked himself, reach Z after all? Surely the leader of a forlorn hope may ask himself that, and answer without treachery to the expedition behind him. One, perhaps. One in a generation. Is he to be blamed then if he is not that one? Provided he has toiled honestly, given to the best of his power, until he has no more left to give. And his fame lasts how long? It is permissible even for a dying hero to think before he dies how men will speak of him hereafter. His fame lasts perhaps 2,000 years. And what are 2,000 years? Asked Mr. Ramsay ironically, staring at the hedge. What indeed if you look at them from a mountain top, down the long wastes of the ages? The very stone one kicks with one's boot will outlast Shakespeare. His own little light would shine, not very brightly, for a year or two, and would then be merged in some bigger light, and that in a bigger still. He looked into the hedge, into the intricacy of the twigs. Who then could blame the leader of that forlorn party, which after all has climbed high enough to see the waste of the years and the perishing of the stars, if before death stiffens his limbs beyond the power of movement, he does a little consciously raise his numbed fingers to his brow, square his shoulders, so that when the search party comes, they will find him dead at his post, the fine figure of a soldier. Mr. Ramsay squared his shoulders and stood very upright by the urn, who shall blame him, if so standing for a moment, he dwells upon fame, upon search parties, upon cairns raised by grateful followers over his bones? Finally, who shall blame the leader of the doomed expedition, if having adventured to the uttermost and used his strength wholly to the last ounce and fallen asleep, not much caring if he wakes or not? He now perceives by some pricking in his toes that he lives and does not on the whole object to live, but requires sympathy and whiskey and someone to tell the story of his suffering to at once. Who shall blame him? Who will not secretly rejoice when the hero puts his armor off and halts by the window? and gazes at his wife and son, who, very distant at first, gradually come closer and closer, till lips and book and head are clearly before him. Though still lovely and unfamiliar from the intensity of his isolation and the waste of ages and the perishing of stars, and finally putting his pipe in his pocket, and bending his magnificent head before her. Who will blame him if he does homage to the beauty of the world? <laughs>
chapter 7. But his son hated him. He hated him for coming up to them, for stopping and looking down on them. He hated him for interrupting them. He hated him for the exultation and sublimity of his gestures, for the magnificence of his head, for his exactingness and egotism, for there he stood, commanding them to attend to him. But most of all, he hated the twang and twitter of his father's emotion, which, vibrating round them, disturbed the perfect simplicity and good sense of his relations with his mother. By looking fixedly at the page, he hoped to make him move on. By pointing his finger at a word, he hoped to recall his mother's attention, which he knew angrily wavered instantly his father stopped. But no, nothing would make Mr. Ramsay move on. There he stood, demanding sympathy. Mrs. Ramsay, who had been sitting loosely, folding her son in her arm, bracing herself, and half turning, seemed to raise herself with an effort, and at once to pour erect into the air a rain of energy, a column of spray, looking at the same time animated and alive, as if all her energies were being fused into force, burning and illuminating, quietly though she sat, taking up her stocking again, and into this delicious fecundity, this fountain spray of life, the fatal sterility of the male plunged itself like a beak of brass, barren and bare. He wanted sympathy. He was a failure, he said. Mrs. Ramsay flashed her needles. Mr. Ramsay repeated, never taking his eyes from her face, that he was a failure. She blew the words back at him. Charles Tansley, she said, but he must have more than that. It was sympathy he wanted, to be assured of his genius, first of all, and then to be taken with the circle of life, warmed and soothed, to have his senses restored to him, his barrenness made fertile, and all the rooms of the house made full of life, the drawing room, Behind the drawing room, the kitchen. Above the kitchen, the bedrooms. And beyond them, the nurseries. They must be furnished. They must be filled with life. Charles Tansley thought him the greatest metaphysician of the time, she said. But he must have more than that. He must have sympathy. He must be assured that he too lived in the heart of life was needed not only here, but all over the world. Flashing her needles, confident, upright, she created drawing room and kitchen, set them all aglow, bade him take his ease there, go in and out, enjoy himself. She laughed, she knitted. Standing between her knees, very stiff, 
James felt all her strength flaring up to be drunk and quenched by the beak of brass, the arid scimitar of the male, which smote mercilessly again and again, demanding sympathy. He was a failure, he repeated. Well, look then. Feel then. Flashing her needles, glancing round about her, out of the window, into the room, at James himself. She assured him beyond a shadow of a doubt by her laugh, her poise, her competence, as a nurse carrying a light across a dark room assures a fractious child that it was real. The house was full, the garden blowing. If he put implicit faith in her, nothing should hurt him. However deep he buried himself, all climbed high, not for a second should he find himself without her. So boasting of her capacity to surround and protect, there was scarcely a shell of herself left for her to know herself by. All was so lavished and spent, and James, as he stood stiff between her knees, felt her rise in a rosy-flowered fruit tree laid with leaves and dancing boughs into which the beak of brass, the arid scimitar of his father, the egotistical man, smote, demanding sympathy. Filled with her words, like a child who drops off, satisfied, he said at last, looking at her with humble gratitude, restored, renewed, that he would take a turn. He would watch the children playing cricket. He went. Immediately, Mrs. Ramsay seemed to fold herself together. One petal closed in another, and the whole fabric fell in exhaustion upon itself, so that she had only strength enough to move her finger in an exquisite abandonment to exhaustion across the page of Grimm's fairy story, while there throbbed through her like a pulse in a spring which has expanded to its full width and now gently ceases to beat the rapture of a successful creation. Every throb of this pulse seemed, as he walked away, to enclose her and her husband, and to give to each that solace which two different notes, one high, one low, struck together, seemed to give each other as they combined. Yet as the resonance died, and she turned to the fairy tale again, Mrs. Ramsay felt not only exhausted in body, afterwards, not at the time, she always felt this, but also there tinged her physical fatigue, some faintly disagreeable sensation with another origin. Not that as she read aloud the story of the fisherman's wife, she knew precisely what it came from, nor did she let herself put into words her dissatisfaction when she realized the turn of the page and she stopped and heard dully, ominously, a wave fall. 
how it came from this. She did not like, even for a second, to feel finer than her husband, and further could not bear not being entirely sure when she spoke to him of the truth of what she said. Universities and people wanting him, lectures and books, and their being of the highest importance. All that she did not doubt for a moment, but it was their relation and his coming to her like that, openly, so that anyone could see that discomposed her. For them people said he depended on her, but they must know that of the two, he was infinitely the more important, and what she gave the world in comparison with what he gave, negligible. But then again it was the other thing too, not being able to tell him the truth, being afraid, for instance, about the greenhouse roof and the expense it would be, fifty pounds perhaps to mend it, and then about his books, to be afraid that he might guess what she a little suspected, that his last book was not quite his best book, she gathered that from William Banks, and then to hide small daily things, and the children seeing it, and the burden it laid on them. All this diminished the entire joy, the pure joy of the two notes sounding together, and let the sound die on her ear now, the dismal flatness. A shadow was on the page. She looked up. It was Augustus Carmichael shuffling past, precisely now at the very moment when it was painful to be reminded of the inadequacy of human relationships. The most perfect was flawed and could not bear the examination which, loving her husband with her instinct for truth, she turned upon it. And it was painful to feel herself convicted of unworthiness and impeded in her proper function by these lies, these exaggerations. It was at this moment when she was fretted thus, ennobly, in the wake of her exultation. Mr. Carmichael shuffled past in his yellow slippers, and some demon in her made it necessary for her to call out as he passed. Going indoors, Mr. Carmichael. Chapter 8 He said nothing. He took opium. The children said it had stained his beard yellow with it. Perhaps... What was obvious to her was that the poor man was unhappy, came to them every year as an escape, and yet every year she felt the same thing. He did not trust her. She said, I'm going to the town, shall I get you stamps, paper, tobacco? And she felt him wince. He did not trust her. It was his wife's doing. She remembered that iniquity of his wife's towards him, which had made her turn to steel and adamant there, in the horrible little room in St. John's Wood, when with her own eyes she had seen that odious woman turn him out of the house. He was unkempt. He dropped things on his coat. He had the tiresomeness of an old man with nothing in the world to do, and she turned him out of the room 
she said in her odious way. Now Mrs. Ramsay and I want to have a little talk together. Mrs. Ramsay could see, as if before her eyes, the innumerable miseries of his life. Had he money enough to buy tobacco? Did he have to ask her for it? Half a crown? Eighteenpence? Or she could not bear to think of the little indignities she made him suffer. And as always now, why she could not guess except that it came probably from that woman somehow, he shrank from her. He never told her anything. But what more could she have done? There was a sunny room given up to him. The children were good to him. Never did she show a sign of not wanting him. She went out of her way indeed to be friendly. Do you want stamps? Do you want tobacco? Here's a book you might like, and so on. And after all, after all, here insensibly she drew herself together, physically the sense of her own beauty becoming, as it did so seldom, present to her. After all, she had not generally any difficulty in making people like her. For instance, George Manning, Mr. Wallace, Famous as they were, they would come to her of an evening, quietly, and talk alone over her fire. She bore about with her, she could not help knowing it, the torch of her beauty. She carried it, erect, into any room that she entered, and after all, veil as she might, and shrink from the monotony of bearing that it imposed on her, her beauty was apparent. She had been admired. She had been loved. She had entered rooms where mourners sat. Tears had flown in her presence. Men and women, too, letting go to the multiplicity of things, had allowed themselves with her the relief of simplicity. It injured her that he should shrink. It hurt her, and yet not cleanly, not rightly. That was what she minded, coming as it did on top of her, discontent with her husband, the sense that she had now when Mr. Carmichael shuffled past, just nodding to her question, with the book beneath his arm, and his yellow slippers. She was suspected, and all this desire of hers to give, to help, was vanity. For her own self-satisfaction was it that she wished so instinctively to help, to give, that people might say of her, Oh, Mrs. Ramsay, dear Mrs. Ramsay, oh, Mrs. Ramsay, of course, and need her, and send for her, and admire her. Was it not secretly this that she wanted, and therefore when Mr. Carmichael shrank away from her, as he did at this moment, making off to some corner where he did acrostics endlessly. Did she not feel merely snubbed back in her instinct, but made aware of the pettiness of some part of her, and of human relations, how flawed they are, how despicable, how self-seeking at their best? Shabby and worn out, not presumably, her cheeks were hollow, her hair was white, 
any longer a sight that filled the eyes with joy. She had better devoted her mind to the story of the fisherman and his wife, and so pacify that bundle of sensitiveness. None of her children were as sensitive as he was. Her son, James. The man's heart grew heavy, she read aloud, and he would not go. He said to himself, it is not right, and yet he went. And when he came to the sea, the water was quite purple and dark blue and gray and thick, no longer so green and yellow, but it was still quiet. And he stood there and said, Mrs. Ramsay could have wished that her husband had not chosen that moment to stop. Why had he not gone as he said to watch the children playing cricket? But he did not speak. He looked. He nodded. He approved. He went on. He slipped, seeing before him that hedge which had over and over again rounded some pause, signified some conclusion, seeing his wife and child, seeing again the urns with the trailing of the red geraniums which had so often decorated processes of thought, and bore written up among their leaves as if they were scraps of paper on which one scribbles notes in the rush of reading. He slipped, seeing all this, smoothly into speculation, suggested by an article in the Times about the number of Americans who visit Shakespeare's house every year. If Shakespeare had never existed, he asked, would the world have differed much from what it is today? Does the progress of civilization depend upon great men? Is the lot of the average human being better now than in the time of the pharaohs? Is the lot of the average human being, however, he asked himself, the criterion by which we judge the measure of civilization? Possibly not. Possibly the greatest good requires the existence of a lowest class. The lift man in the tube is an eternal necessity. The thought was distasteful to him. He tossed his head. To avoid it, he would find some way of snubbing the predominance of the arts. He would argue that the world exists for the average human being. The arts are merely a decoration imposed on top of human life. They do not express it. Nor is Shakespeare necessary to it. Not knowing precisely why it was that he wanted to disparage Shakespeare and come to the rescue of the man who stands eternally in the door of the lift, he picked a leaf sharply from the hedge. All this would have to be dished up for the young men at Cardiff next month, he thought. Here on his terrace, he was merely foraging and picnicking. He threw away the leaf that he had picked so peevishly, like a man who reaches from his horse to pick a bunch of roses, or stuffs his pockets with nuts as he ambles at his ease through the lanes and fields of a country known to him from boyhood. It was all familiar, this turning, that style, that cut across the fields. Hours he would spend thus, 
with his pipe of an evening, thinking up and down and in and out of the old familiar lanes and commons, which were all stuck about with the history of that campaign there, the life of this statesman here, with poems and with anecdotes, with figures too, this thinker, that soldier, all very brisk and clear, but at length, the lane, the field, the common, the fruitful nut tree and the flowering hedge led him on to that further turn of the road where he dismounted always, tied his horse to a tree and proceeded on foot alone. He reached the edge of the lawn and looked out on the bay beneath. It was his fate his peculiarity, whether he wished it or not, to come out thus on a spit of land with which the sea is slowly eating away, and there to stand, like a desolate seabird, alone. It was his power, his gift, suddenly to shed all superfluities, to shrink and diminish, so that he looked barer and felt sparer even physically, yet lost none of his intensity of mind, and so to stand on his little ledge, facing the dark of human ignorance. How we know nothing, and the sea eats away the ground we stand on. That was his fate, his gift. But having thrown away when he dismounted all gestures and fripperies, all trophies of nuts and roses, and shrunk so that not only fame, but even his own name was forgotten by him, kept even in that desolation a vigilance which spared no phantom and luxuriated in no vision. And it was in this guise he inspired in William Banks intermittently, and in Charles Tansley obsequiously, and his wife, now, when she looked up and saw him standing at the edge of the lawn, profoundly, reverence, and pity, and gratitude too, as a stake driven into the bed of a channel upon which the gulls perch and the waves beat inspires in merry boatloads a feeling of gratitude for the duty it is taking upon itself of marking the channel out there in the floods alone. But the father of eight children has no choice, muttering half aloud, so he broke off, turned, sighed, raised his eyes, sought the figure of his wife reading stories to his little boy, filled his pipe. He turned from the sight of human ignorance and human fate, and the sea eating the ground we stand on which, had he been able to contemplate it fixedly, might have led to something, and found consolation in trifles so slight compared with the august theme just now before him that he was disposed to slur that comfort over, to depreciate it, as if to be caught happy in a world of misery was for an honest man the most despicable of crimes. It was true. 
he was for the most part happy. He had his wife, he had his children, he had promised in six weeks' time to talk some nonsense to the young men of Cardiff about Locke, Hume, Berkeley, and the causes of the French Revolution. But this and his pleasure in it, his glory in the phrases he made, in the ardor of youth, in his wife's beauty, in the tributes that reached him from Swansea, Cardiff, Exeter, Southampton, Kidderminster, Oxford, Cambridge, all had to be deprecated and concealed under the phrase talking nonsense, because in effect, he had not done the thing he might have done. It was a disguise. It was the refuge of a man afraid to own his own feelings, who could not say, this is what I like, this is what I am and rather pitiable and distasteful to William Banks and Lily Briscoe, who wondered why such concealments should be necessary, why he needed always praise, why so brave a man in thought should be so timid in life. How strangely he was venerable and laughable at one and the same time. Teaching and preaching is beyond human power, Lily suspected. She was putting away her things. If you are exalted, you must somehow come a cropper. Mrs. Ramsay gave him what he asked too easily. Then the change must be so upsetting, Lily said. Comes in from his books and finds us all playing games and talking nonsense. Imagine what a change from the things he thinks about, she said. He was bearing down upon them now. He stopped dead and stood, looking in silence at the sea. Now he had turned away again 